Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to The Rest is History. Back in the mists of time when we were mere podcasting novices, when we recorded our very first episode, we hit on the subject of greatness. And today's podcast is about a man we talked about a lot in that first episode without ever really getting into his story. And it is probably the greatest story in all history. It is, of course, Alexander the Great. Tom Holland, there's probably no greater character No better story, no more glamour and excitement and romance than in the life of Alexander, is there? It's a great story. (laughs) I thought it was really interesting. And I was surprised um, that when I put uh, the note up on Twitter saying we were going to do Alexander the Great, the response was absolutely overwhelming. I don't think we've ever had as many replies or questions, have we? we? I don't think we even had, I don't think we had more questions even for Hitler. Than we did for Alexander and Sam, so he's um, a heroic kind of backroom boy who he was basically ploughing through hundreds <laughs> of questions <laughs> yes. in order to try and whittle them down a little bit. Well, I was reassured, and I tell you why was because um, I went to this fantastic um, literary festival held at Patrick Lee Fermer's uh, oh, yeah. house on the shore of the Peloponnese, and there was a um, there was a kind of uh, parlour game type thing in the evening where we all had to. Uh, make an argument for who was the greatest Greek. And obviously I chose Alexander the Great because he's great. And I thought, I'm just going to, of course <laughs> I'm going to walk this. Um, and Bethany Hughes chose uh, Helen of Troy and we came uh, joint bottom. Oh no. Yeah. Oh my God. Who won? Uh, Aristophanes, because he would have opposed Brexit. That's a terrible, that, that's such an <laughs> indictment to that whole occasion. So that may reflect the fact that I made a terrible case for him. And I think I right. did rather. But yeah. but I think it also reflects um, a kind of tension in uh, attitudes towards Alexander now that um, right. we actually discussed in our very first. Right. That yeah. there, he is obviously, I mean, he's, he's a great figure. He's the essence of greatness. He's the first person to be called great. Uh, that's the whole point of him. But uh, there's a slight ambivalence now towards him that that perhaps wasn't there uh, earlier. Uh, so, so there was this whole kind of, <laughs> the heyday of the British Empire, there was this idea that he was um, selflessly conquering the world for the yeah. good of uh, the co- subject people, which obviously went down rather well. And now that kind of attitude is, um, but it's a, is viewed it's a tr- with a certain degree of askance. It's a tremendous adventure story, isn't it? I think you've got a question from Stephen Clark. Is that right? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just queuing you up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, yes, so I do. Yes. So a question from Stephen Clark, friend of the show. Yeah, I, great, man. Particularly a, great man. Great man in his own right. A friend of Dominic. I mean, this is a shame, shameful question. <laughs> it's the top question that Sam chose <laughs> of all the questions. It is. You put it at the top of the sheet. Oh, God. I'm losing the will to live. Why did Dominic choose Alexander the Great as one of his Adventures in Time series? So, Dominic, Adventures yeah. in Time. This is your series of children's books. You did an earlier one on uh, Henry VIII on the Second yes. World War. You've got one on the First World War, which is why we're going to be doing Remembrance <laughs> Sunday as our next episode. It's a complete coincidence. Uh, it's a massive coincidence. Um, and you've chose Alexander the Great. What story did you um, have to miss out or severely edit to ensure your book about Alexander is appropriate for children? Uh, funnily enough, I don't think I really did have to miss any stories out. Did you miss out Bagoas? 
the uh... BagOS actually has been massively inflated. So BagOS is the Persian eunuch that he supposedly has an affair with. One of the one Bag- of the top eunuchs who appeared in our he was one of our top, top eunuchs. BagOS's yeah. appearance in the sources are, are, are slight at best. I mean, so did you leave him out? Fleeting. So I think I pretty much no. I, there's one fleeting mention of him that when I'm talking about Alexander adopting Persian customs, that he's a, got a great friend called Bagwas. Um, <laughs> That's uh, nice. Um, but a great pal. Uh, but no, I think, um, why did I choose it? Well, why are we doing it on this podcast and why are we going to give it two episodes? I mean, the answer is because it is probably the single most exciting story in all history. I think the only one that would really compare would be the it's arrival the of the Persian invasion of Greece. I would not say that. And not oh, even Watergate or indeed the Jeremy Thorpe scandal. <laughs> I would say it's probably the arrival of the conquistadors in the new world for the sheer kind of drama, almost science fiction level drama. I mean, the idea that Alexander, you know, he fights his first major battle when he's 18, when he's 20, he's king. He leads his men for a decade on this unbelievably strange and exacting journey where they go to places that they've, they could barely imagine they're climbing these mountains. They see the pyramids. They, they travel for, I think, historians have worked out, they, they keep going for about 22,000 miles. Uh, and they just keep going. And at, one, and at the end, they think they're gonna, he thinks he's going to get to the end of the earth. I mean, it's an incredible story. And in the course of it, he conquers, he defeats the world's big, most biggest and richest empire. He becomes king of kings. He enters unchallenged, the greatest city on earth. He thinks he's a god. I mean, what's not to like? It's just a tremendous, tremendous quest narrative. And, and I think it's one of those stories that um, you read about it as a child and it, it gets you into history Absolutely, for life. Is. And then I think you slightly put it away, don't you? Because you sort of are a bit... Im- it's the kind of story I think that well, teenagers and people in their 20s put away because they're a bit embarrassed by it. They, they, think- they don't want to do a seminar on it. And then they come back to it later on and they're like, damn, it's a good story. So I think lots of... You know, we've talked about this before, and lots of people, myself included, kind of get into history, and perhaps particularly ancient history, through the mythology, Greek mythology. Yeah. And you read the Trojan War and all that kind of stuff, and then you want a sequel. And in a way, Alexander is the sequel. And he's a sequel, I think, for two reasons. Uh, partly because uh, he consciously models himself on Achilles. So he yeah. um, uh, he claims to be descended from Achilles and from Heracles, two great heroes. So ultimately, he's, you know, he's the descendant of Zeus. So he's wired into that world of mythology. Um, he models himself on Achilles. He takes Iliad with him on his great adventures and so on. Yeah. But I think also um, it's because actually the, the story of Alexander the Great is um, it is a kind of myth because actually the sources for it are a lot more patchy, precarious and late than one might want to think. Uh, and we, 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 on our episode of Muhammad, and really the story mm. of the Arab conquest is the only comparison to this. Um, if you think, you know, Macedon is on the margins of great empires and it conquers these great empires rather in the way that the Arabs do um, in the, in the, uh, the seventh and eighth centuries. Um, and just as the sources for the, the Arab conquests are, are, are late, kind of centuries later, uh, and therefore the kind of stories that you get with lots of arrows and maps and things and people yeah. confidently saying that the Arabs did this and they did that, you know, you've got to slightly kind of raise an eyebrow at that. Same is slightly true for Alexander, because I think the, the earliest account, narrative account of his life is 300 years after it. Most of the accounts that we draw on are actually written in the heyday of the Roman Empire. So in they a are. sense, are yeah. as much about the Romans as they are about Alexander himself. They are. So... And on top of that, there's a further complication, which is that we have all, and this is something again that we talked about in the, the Thermopylae episode, we have almost nothing written sources from the Persian side. 
And so a bit as in a kind of romance, a knightly romance, you get the knight going out and having the adventures and you don't hear about, you know, what the dragon thought of it. <laughs> so likewise yeah. with this, he, he leads his armies, he attacks all these people, but, but it's, it's like they are just kind of exotic names. They're just the stormtroopers in Star Wars. They're the kind of, grist kind to of. His mill. Yeah, and I think, I, I think, I think that the, the great, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the great revolution, the understanding of Alexander. And it was, it's been pointed out by various academics that the study of Alexander has, you know, in terms of sophistication has been, it's been a bit of a backwater for quite a long time. And I think that that has really begun to change and it's chiefly begun to change because there are great scholars who have looked at the Persians and have tried to place Alexander in the context yeah. of, of the world that he conquers. Um, and perhaps the greatest of them is a French scholar called Pierre Briand. He famously described Alexander as the last of the Achaemenids. And the Achaemenid is the Persian dynasty that, yes. that, that Alexander overthrows. And I think that that actually does start to make sense of him as someone who is not, you know, a, a hero from myth and is not a kind of monster, which are the two poles that tend to mm. kind of govern how he's understood, but someone who is a brilliantly, brilliantly inventive and creative politician as well as kind of one of one of the greatest generals who's ever lived and i think the way the persianness of alexander is something we'll come to because we are going to tell the story and do it in proper detail but the persianness becomes so important doesn't it the extent to which he ceases to be macedonian or greek and becomes a king of kings like he never takes on that title no he doesn't he never takes on that but as we will discover he certainly takes on the appearance. Yes, he, he takes does. on a lot of the rituals. He has the costume. He has the wife. He has the eunuchs. He has because the he lot. recognizes that that's the only way. Well, let's come on. We, we, we're okay, leaping yes, ahead. We're, yes, we are. Let's, we are. Let's tell the story. Let's. This is arguably the the most exciting story in all history. So we should really do it justice. So let's start with where he comes from. So he comes from the kingdom of Macedon or Macedonia. Uh, and Amy Mantravardi has a question. She says, who gets to claim him, Greece or Macedonia or North Macedonia, as it's now called? Well, Tom, you and I have recorded a documentary about this before, haven't we? Um, <laughs> we have. Well, uh, I, I think, I think that, so there's a huge argument, isn't there, uh, yeah. in Greece and in the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, Macedonia yeah. about where, who Alexander belongs to. And it's an insane argument because he doesn't belong to either of them um, because but I think they both have every right to claim him. You claim him you like. They do. But so, it, but but in the, in the context of the fourth century, when Alexander is born, is Macedonia Greek? This is this is a, a question that is kind of contested and debated. And basically, I think Macedonia is Greek because yeah, the Macedonian kings are able to compete at the Olympic Games. Yeah, and they speak and that, a version. Essentially, they speak a kind of dialect of Greek. Now, other Greeks do mock them. So Demosthenes in Athens, who's a great rival of the Macedonians and hates the Macedonians, he says they're not even proper Greeks. They don't. They 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 live like dogs. You can't even buy a proper slave from Macedonia. He says. Um, but well, in Oliver Stone's film, yeah, the Macedonians speak with Irish accents, don't they? I I've actually never I, seen. I, I can't. I've, I've I love the seen story. I've loved the story of Alexander so much. I can't bring myself to watch Oliver. But Stone's I think perhaps film. the comparison is with Scotland and England. Maybe yes. I think that's because there's the lowlands and there's highlands in exactly. Macedonia. And they're there's, seen there's a as sense that they're warlike clannish highlanders aren't they and they've been divided and they've been a bit of a backwater and the a key figure a massive figure is alexander's father philip ii who one-eyed lost an eye a siege and he unites all the clans behind his program of of basically fighting other people and conquering them and he crucially conquers some gold mines mount pangaeum that gives him tons of money so he's able to basically buy off all these rival clan leaders in Macedonia. <laughs> and and he, he invents a very long spear. 
Sarissa. 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 Yeah. So um, there's a funk master. What made his army the best in the world? That's Alexander's, but it would be Philip's as well. Technology or leadership. I've never really understood the thing about the Sarissa. Haven't you? Well, it's just a very long spear. Yeah, but obviously I haven't heard to other. <laughs> but also they have um, they have different kind of shields. They have kind of uh, smaller shields. They're more mobile, more flexible, and they have leather um, helmets rather than um, metal ones. I think they're the the other the Greeks that they're fighting are a bit more lumbering and sort of old fashioned, and the Macedonians are more sort of supple and quick moving. And stuff. Yes, but I still don't entirely understand. Why inventing a if only you spear. had a, a family member who was really into military <laughs> history and could enlighten you, then you would know. Well, I've got, I've got a top classical historian on the podcast, so go on it. You... <laughs> well, they're very flexible. They've got a long spear. They've got a nice wearing, new shield. And, and they're wearing yeah. less armour. They're very fast. Um, they're very well trained. I think they're super well trained. They've got a cavalry wing. They do. So basically the Macedonian yeah, Alexander's a great three, kind of very dashing. They have the phalanx. Wing. They have these guys called the shield bearers who are the kind of elite um, kind of infantry, and then they have the companion cavalry, as they're called, who are the kind of nobles. And uh, yeah, very dashing. They, they don't have stirrups, do they? Um, no. And they always they, look yeah. for gaps in the lines, and then they slice. They in, do. They do. Which is very much so, what Alexander does. So Philip is this sort of tremendous warlord um, who is basically bent on subduing the other Greek states to his will and creating a kind of informal empire in, in Greece, I suppose, isn't he? But he has a justification for that, which is taking vengeance on Persia. Yes. For having burnt the Acropolis. Exactly. In, in so, 480 BC. So his sort of plan is, you know, if you're looking out from Macedonia, you say, well, I will deal with the other Greek city-states and bring them into my orbit. And then once they are on side, we can all go and attack the very, very rich Greek-speaking cities of what's now Turkey, um, the very western fringe of the Persian Empire, because they are loaded. Sardis, yeah. Halicarnassus, Miletus, you know, they're tons of money. I'll be incredibly rich and popular. Everybody will say hurrah for me because I've beaten the Persians. You know, it's kind of win-win, basically. Well, or will they? Or will they? So there's there's two attitudes to, to this in Greece. One represented by Demosthenes, who you've mentioned, the great orator in Athens, um, who regards this as a massive scam. Yeah. And Philip as a crook. And the yeah. whole thing is kind of highfalutin nonsense, which is designed to provide a justification for the Macedonian takeover. And then you have other Greeks who are inspired by a guy called Socrates, who sees it as the Greek mission to subdue barbarians. Yeah, and that's a real thing. That's not just a sort of, it's not just a scam, because ideologically, people do believe in that, don't they? Ian? They do. Well, they do. So so it could be a bit of both. But essentially, yeah. the, you know, the, the, there are people in Greece who, who are backing Philip in this. And there are others who see him essentially as a kind of shyster. Yeah. Uh, and maybe he's a bit of both. He's Val Kilmer in the film, isn't he? I, I think that's absolutely ludicrous casting. Well, I, we really need to see it before we talk about it. It's true. This is a, a sensational advert for our forthcoming um, live show at the Odeon Leicester Square. Where so we'll we promoted be two things doing cinema. Yes. That's nice. It's really, it's really good. <laughs> and the fact we're talking about a film that neither of us have seen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that bodes very well. <laughs> yes, it really does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so anyway, Philip has multiple wives, but one of them is this uh, raven-haired um, woman called Olympias from Epirus. Uh, who, the Molossians. Yes. She... Um, is terrifying. So she, yes, there's a lot of stuff going on with sorcery and with snakes with her that other, <laughs> so Greeks, said. other Greeks find a bit disconcerting. So it's claimed, you know, does. she spends all her time with these sort of necromancers fiddling with snakes and she takes the snakes to bed, um, which other Greeks say is poor form. <laughs> um, <laughs> Including but, Philip. 
but she gives birth. Yes, because hello, darling. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> that wasn't expecting that. Um, so she gives birth anyway. Uh, in what is it? Uh, three fifty-five, three fifty-six, exactly three, five, to Alexander. Uh, I mean, Alexandros, defender of the people. I think it means. Um, and yeah, he he famously now it's t- his education is really important because it's part of his sort of mystique and his romance isn't it that he's he's brought up with a load of lads yeah basically the sort of boarding school yes and they're all great chums yeah and very good chums ch- very good chums <laughs> and these are the chums who will accompany him on the it's like the adventure. billy bunter stories or something um, and his chief chum is a, a chap called hephaestion yeah, Patroclus to his Achilles. They yes. really fancy themselves, don't they, as the sort of reincarnation of these heroes of old. And who, do, who does Philip get to be his tutor? <laughs> he gets Aristotle. He <laughs> gets else? the he gets the he gets the top philosopher of the day. So um, that tells you how rich Philip is. I, I think. Well, he's destroyed. He's destroyed um, Aristotle's hometown, hasn't he? He has. He has indeed. And so he's able to kind of get Aristotle along by saying that he'll he'll basically make yeah. up for that. <laughs> and they go to this sort of lovely wooded place called Mieza and uh, they walk in groves and talk about philosophy and all this sort of thing. That sounds absolutely lovely to me. So we've got a question from Jordan Cox. Did Alexander consider himself an Aristotelian? I don't think he did. <laughs> I don't think he would have had a concept of what that no. meant. But I think it is. he was obviously very well educated. I mean, it's hard to think of anybody at the time who would have been better educated. And we know he loved the Iliad. We know he loved mythology. Uh, he's, it's said that he liked poetry and song and all these kinds of things. But I think I think the role that Aristotle plays in the the myth of Alexander is that Aristotle is a great philosopher. Yeah. So, of course, Alexander the Great has to have the greatest philosopher. But it also, I mean, I, I don't think it's purely a sort of that makes it sound like it's a concoction, though, Tom. Which I, I mean, he he genuinely did teach him. He, I, I'm not sure that that um, that anything Aristotle uh, taught Alexander. Played a particular yeah. role in in uh, enabling him to conquer. I can't the believe you're dissing Aristotle's teachings and saying I'm not dissing him. I'm not dissing him. It's just that Alexander didn't sit around and become a philosopher. And actually, you know, Aristotle's teachings. He's he's very very stern on the fact that Greeks are better than barbarians. But we know two things about Alexander and philosophy. We know that he went to see Diogenes the Cynic, when who lived in a jar in Corinth, in Corinth, in a barrel, and was very keen to. Um, it was a jar, Tom, not a barrel. Oh, it's a barrel. It's a clay jar. It's a wine jar called a pithos. Okay. I'm so glad I've been able to uh, instruct you about some, some Greek. Which I can't speak any word of Greek or other than good morning, thank you, and so on. Anyway, I've got the, I've got the jar in. And then when they're in India, he goes to see some philosophers, some naked philosophers, and he takes one of them with him, a man called Calanus. The gymnosophists. Yeah, the gymnosophists, exactly. So Alexander, he loved a bit of philosophy. But Diogenes was very rude to him. Because Alexander went and, and said to Diogenes, is there anything I can do for you? And Diogenes says, get out of the, get out of the sun. sun. Yeah, <laughs> get out of the sun. Well, I'm sure Alexander found that. Because Diogenes, Diogenes in his wine jar. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what he used to do there? He, he uh, Well, he often rolled it up and down the gymnasium in Corinth, I believe. But when he was in it, he would just sit there and masturbate. Would he? Yeah. I didn't put that in the children's book. <laughs> no, because the um, whole thing of Diogenes was that he despised convention and custom. Yes, he believed you should live like a dog, you should like, live a, like, a dog. like an animal. Yeah, so hence, hence the hence cynic. cynic. Yeah. Right. So back to the story. Uh, Alexander, all we know about him as a boy is he famously, there's a story about him taming his horse, Bucephalus, Bucephalus or Bucephalus. Yes. Yeah. Um, he tames this horse that uh, 
it costs 13 talents and is incredibly expensive. It's a shadow. It's afraid of its own shadow. So the horse then becomes part of the story. I mean, this is why it appeals to children, I think, that he has this sort of horse that accompanies him almost all the quest. And the medieval legend is that um, uh, it's it's said that whoever will tame this horse will rule the world. Exactly. And Bucephalus or Bucephalus is said to be the ancestor of the unicorn. Did you know that? <laughs> That's great, isn't it? <laughs> so... Uh, all his youth, Philip, Alexander's youth, Philip is fighting the other Greeks. And he basically, there's a, there's a battle at uh, Chironea, I think yes, it is. Yes, outside Thebes. Yeah, where they smash the Thebans, the sacred band of the Thebans, kind of once and for all, don't they? Well, and Athens. So the- the- Thebes and Athens have been old enemies, but they, they, they sign up to face the Macedonian threat. Demosthenes fights at, at Chironea. Um, and uh, Alexander is 18, I think. Yeah, 18. He's cavalry. Slices in uh, and spectacular victory. Um, very harsh terms imposed on Thebes because Philip had been a, a, a hostage there as a boy. That's right, he had. Yes. Um, so, so Philip is always slightly harsher with Thebes. Uh, he's uh, much, much, um, much more sparing towards Athens. And Alexander goes as his emissary to Athens. So I think it's the only time he goes to Athens. That's the first. Yeah, the first yeah. And only time he went. He takes the urns. Yes. Uh, the sacred urns with the ashes. Is it of the or yeah. the bones of the. Yeah. Of the defeated Athenians. So then they have a big meeting in Corinth, don't they, after that? Yes, and where Philip gets appointed um, head of all the uh, all the Greeks apart from the Spartans. Yeah, the Spartans are doing and their Philip's so cross about this that <laughs> all, all the dedications, it's, you know, in the name of Philip and all the Greeks except for the Spartans. <laughs> so petty. But he's now really pumped because he thinks, great, I've, I've basically beaten all the Greeks. Um, they're all on side except the Spartans. And we are going to cross the Hellespont and attack Persia. And he goes to the Delphic Oracle, Philip does, and they give him this message. Wreathed is the bull. The end is near. The one who will kill him is at hand. And Philip says to himself, well, this is tremendous. This is obviously the Persian king is going to be killed. But little does Philip know. What a twist, Tom. What a twist. twist. What a twist. Because (laughs) two years after the Battle of Chironea, he gets assassinated. In and, very strange circumstances, yes, it has to be said. And at a wedding. And the question is, who is responsible? Well, we know it's a guy called Pausanias who wields the okay, dagger, yes. don't so we? So he's a bodyguard. But but, but who but, suborned him? Because 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 the bodyguard the, bo- the bodyguard gets killed. It's a bit like Macbeth. Yeah. Know, Macbeth killing all the, the servants. Um the bodyguard gets killed and executed before he can be um interrogated. So Qui Bono, who who benefits from it? So Perhaps, uh, perhaps a, a Persian agent. Yeah. Uh, perhaps Olympias, because yeah, Olympias by this said- point had a spectacular bust up because Philip has married um, uh, Cleopatra. There's a lot of Cleopatras. A lot of Cleopatras. Who is uh, unlike unlike Olympias is is Macedonian and doesn't mess around with snakes and has a baby um, who's a son. And so perhaps it's Alexander because his. He's yeah. he's already had his nose out of joint. He's already he's he's got he's gone off for kind of six months in a in a yes, with his mates. They've all gone with, with his him. mates. Yeah. yeah, they've all gone off in assault. So relations between Philip and Alexander are really really bad, and they seem to be patched up, but maybe they're not. So we don't know. I mean, we'll never know. But the interesting thing is that there's a there's this bizarre story behind the Pausanias murder. The Pausanias was feeling really sore. Well, I mean, literally sore because he had been raped by some other guy, who Philip had then promoted. And um, Pausanias was outraged at this. So, yes, so, so that might have been just the reason. Uh, but anyway, yes, it's the wedding games, isn't it? He's killed on his way into the stadium. 
They chase after him, kill Pausanias. Alexander is now king. He didn't have to be king. And this is in, he, there's a sort of slight element of a kind, kind of, of stitch up with yeah. some of the commanders um, who are who are who are tooled up and ready to go to Persia. And the key one is Parmenio, isn't it? Yes, who he's is already? I think in Asia at this yeah. point. Yeah, or he's and on he's the, kind of he's on the right coast. Yeah, exactly. He's Philip's right hand man, and basically Alexander says, "You'll still be commander. We'll still do the invasion. Nothing will change. I am now king. I'm going to come with you." And he's twenty years old. Yeah. And so, where are we? We're about halfway through the first episode, aren't we? Going so slowly, it's unbelievable. So he's twenty years old, and he 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 goes north. He he you know, he beats up various kind of tribes. He goes and fights lots of Balkan tribes first yeah, as a sort of warm-up. Just for the fun of it. They're like they're friendlies before the World <laughs> yes, Cup or something. Yeah. Has a kick around. Uh, <laughs> then the Thebans revolt. Yeah. He destroys Thebans. He wipes out the whole city, except for the house of Pindar, the famous yeah. poet. Yeah. Nice. nice. You see, that's his love of literature coming through. <laughs> <laughs> how, yes. Aristotle kicking in there. He also, he goes to the uh, Oracle as well. You know what happens at the Oracle? Um, the priestess says, it's not, it's not the right day. You know, you've got the wrong day. I don't do it today. And he, and he drags her out by her hair. And she says, my son, thou art invincible. He says, great. That's what I wanted to know. Thank you very much. <laughs> what a lad. Let's go. What um, a lad. Okay. Well, I think this is, this is where we should stop for the, for a break, yeah. shouldn't we? This is clearly going to be about seven episodes. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not. We've, we've got, so we've got Alexander to the shores of the Hellespont. Yeah. He's getting ready to cross. The Persians are waiting. Greece yeah. behind him is relatively secure. What's going to happen next? Couldn't be more dramatic. We'll see you back after the break. Welcome back to The Rest is History. And before we get back to Alexander, um, I just want to mention a special offer uh, for Rest is History listeners that we've got from um, the people at Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D. And Dominic, uh, Unheard, a very fine online magazine. Very fine. Very fine. Tom... I'm in loving this because this is actually about the fifth take that you've done because you kept um, <laughs> mispronouncing yourself, Alexander, everything. So uh, I'll do the rest of the, I'll do some of the talking anyway. Unheard, it's an online magazine, so they say, that aims to put today's events in the context of broader history and philosophy. And I say so they say, but actually we have both written for Unheard, as some listeners will know. They aim to push back against herd mentality and publish independent thinkers. Do you, do you try to do that, Tom? Is that what I you're do. doing when you're writing for Unheard? Yes, every time. Um, and I like to think that I have uh, pushed back against herd mentality and oh, good for you. independence. Well done. Uh, so I could give uh, an example of that. Um, we're writing about Alexander. We're Just like a Alexander job interview, today. give me an example of your... <laughs> I, know, I know. I'm passionate. I, I'd say I'm passionate to get about pushing back against herd <laughs> mentality. Um, and uh, as a, uh, evidence for that, I would uh, offer uh, an example of um, a counterfactual piece that I wrote about what would have happened had the Persians conquered Greece. Oh, very apt. Uh, and it was... Yes, very apt. In the and it was uh, I mentioned um, Livy, the Roman historian, talking about what would have happened if Alexander had invaded Italy. Oh, good for you! I've yeah, also so- written for Unheard, and I love pushing back against herd mentality. Are you passionate about that? I'm probably not as passionate as you, but I'm, sometimes I like to go with the herd, just out oh. of fear. Oh, and cowardice. No, but, you don't. Uh, no, I'm joking. Of course, no, you're I joking. Don't. Of course, I don't. I'm just being self-deprecating. And to be to to, to be serious, Dominic. Yeah. One of the things about Unheard is that almost every they publish kind of three or four articles every every day. They do, and there is always, you know, at least one or two that makes you see things in a completely different way. So there was an example last week about um, India, uh, yeah. a piece about India, and the challenge of uh, looking at its history through the lens of victimhood. 
I remember I it well. Was, it was a yeah. jolly good, jolly good yeah. article. I thought I it was very it interesting. So the good news for our listeners, there's tremendous news, isn't there? Great news. Absolutely. Uh, there's a special offer. It's the first three months free. It's normally one pound a week. And if you don't like it, um, if you, you know, you don't like pushing. Why wouldn't you like mentality? You're part of the herd. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're part of the herd. Then you can unsubscribe. Uh, so that is unheard.com slash rest. Um, and unheard is U-N-H-E-R-D. So unheard.com slash rest. Yeah. Don't be part of the herd. Be part of the unheard. <laughs> the unheard. <herd. laughs> Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, Alexander is at the Hellespont, Tom. He crosses the Hellespont. He throws a spear, doesn't he, to show yes. that he's Asia spear is, one. is his spear one prize. He's claiming Asia. Um, there's a really interesting question here right at this point. What do you think that he and his officers think they're going to do? Well, the habit of, of uh, crossing into uh, Asia and trying to, to steal various cities under Persian rule is a bit of a habit. Um, yeah. Greek, Greek generals have been doing it for you know a long time. And I think that that's why uh, Darius III, who is the, the Achaemenid king uh, far away in Persia, and his um, his deputies are not unduly worried about what's going on yeah. because they've seen it all before. Um, I, I think that that Alexander, well, people call it his pothos, his, his kind of his yearning, his to, yearning yeah. to reach the beyond the limits. Uh, I have that I, with I, podcasting. I think. I mean, it's. I think it's impossible to kind of psychologize Alexander in that way because you know said the, he's so removed from us. But clearly, he's a man of ambition. Um, and I think that he kind of reaches the stage, you know, but basically, he just keeps going and he keeps yeah. winning. Why stop? And he ends up kind of able to see the, the prize in front of him, but knowing that he cannot afford a single mistake. And that's, that's what's extraordinary about the story. And that's clearly true that... He achieves what he achieves because he never once slips up badly. Yeah. He never, never loses a battle. Yeah. He never makes a, a, a terrible strategic error. He's in tough spots, but he always gets out of he them. He always gets out of them. Uh, and I think that, that basically the, the further he goes, the more he wins, the more tantalizing the prize becomes, the more he's determined to, 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 to claim that prize. Yeah. And, and, and I think the habit of success breeds ambition and ambition breeds success i'm sure that's true i think my, my theory is i don't think at this stage he thinks he's going to be king of all persia by any means i agree with you i think he this is like a this is like a standard a thing you do yeah it's a jaunt it's a gap year um yeah. and i think all his men i mean you can sort of tell that by when they get crossed with him at the very end of the quest because i think at this stage they think this is great we'll go for like a couple of years Take these very rich cities. I'll come back absolutely loaded and be Lads able to buy be, and be able to buy like a massive farm and you know loads of land, and I'll be laughing. If you'd said to them, then you'll be gone for ten years, and you're going to end up in India. You're going to end up in India. They'd have said thanks, <laughs> yeah. but no thanks. You know, let the guy down the road go. So anyway, they cross over, don't they? And he he does this hilarious thing when they go to the tomb of uh, the grave of Achilles, and he takes off all his clothes. 
pours oil over himself and runs around the tomb again and again. Is that, is that kind of standard behaviour? You know more about well, the Greek world. It's, it's fair. I mean, as we say, it's a lad's tour. Yeah. <laughs> what, what happens on tour stays on tour. I guess so. Um, anyway, so, so but it's not just running around naked, is it? He, he also has um, a Persian enemy to defeat. He does. So, but this is he a, does at the Battle of the River Granicus. He does, but you said that Darius doesn't take this terribly seriously. I'm sure I absolutely agree with you because at first, he doesn't go himself. There's a guy called Memnon of Rhodes who is the uh, Persian. So he's a Greek. So it just tells Greek you actually. Mercenary. Yeah. Greek mercenary. The Persians have got tons of Greek mercenaries. Memnon of Rhodes says to the uh, Persians. Alexander has Greek contingents as well, but there's a slight sense that they're hostages as much as they're yeah. allies. Yeah. So Memnon says to the Persians, listen, just retreat, scorched earth. You know, he'll take some stuff and then he'll go away. And they refuse to do that. They say, no, we'll face him. So they arrive at this river, the Granicus. And uh, now here's where your sources are interesting, because Parmenian, so Alexander's commander, in some versions he says, let's wait till the morning, let's not attack. And in other versions, they, Alexander says to him, no, I will attack, you know, I'm not going to, I'm Alexander, I should attack them straight away. Uh, and which which you pick as a historian basically just depends on how you see Alexander. Do you see him as calculating well, or do you and, see and him as no impulsive? And there's no guarantee that either of them are right. No, that's true. That's the you know, I mean, that's the thing. That's the problem. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's go but. with the best version. They charge straight across the river, <laughs> and they basically just wipe the floor. Alexander is almost killed, but, but he's, he's rescued by Black Clytus, right? Who is the brother of his old nanny, Lanike. Yes. So this is important for later. It is important when we get to episode twenty-seven of this Alexander <laughs> quest. You will need to remember that detail. <laughs> right. So I think we need to slightly speed things up. So Alexander beats the Persians at River Granicus. He then. Yeah kind of charges down he takes all those rich cities now even at that point i think that's the first point at which you could say he could stop he's got that coastline but he thinks no i'll keep going why would i stop the persians are nowhere to be seen so i'll just kind of keep going he goes to he goes to a place called gordium and he cuts the gordian a famous knot yes <laughs> yeah, the only <laughs> town in the world with a famous knot i think <laughs> well except that he ruins it well, you know who you know who tied that knot, Tom? It was Heracles, uh, wasn't it? No, Midas, King Midas, oh, Midas of gold fame and ass's ears. So Midas had ridden into Gordium with his father Gordias, who became king, and they tied up the cart and this great knot. And whoever cuts the knot, or sorry, We're whoever unties the knot, will become lord of all Asia. And Alexander stands there, and everyone's staring at him. He sets himself a very high. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, because he's going to look like a fool if he can't. On Instagram. Tie this, yeah, it's not. People are standing with their phones, <laughs> yeah. boys, you know. Um, and so eventually he just takes out his sword and cuts it. Hurrah! He's cut the Gordian knot. Hence the expression. Yeah. And, and so that proves he's going to conquer Asia. And, right. And so it happens. So he, he um, heads down uh, towards the kind of the, if you think the right angle between what's now Turkey and Syria. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he meets with... Darius, who this by this point has basically thought, mm, need to sort this out. But he's come with a massive army, massive and army. He's, and he's brought and he's brought his family. Yeah, they, it's brought, brought his, his wife. And, yeah, he's brought his mum. You're right, Sisigambis. <laughs> he's brought his mum. That's that's madness. Anyway, well, that just shows how little he he you know what he thinks of Alexander. He just thinks this is some crazy you know the Macedonians are primitive, some barbarian, some barbarian raiding party will smash them up. I'll look really good. And he's trapped Alexander. He's come behind him through the mountains and got him trapped between the mountains. Which is what the Persians sea. always do. Typical absolute Persian masters of, uh, of of mountain warfare. I will never get into the mountains with uh, Ali Ansari. <laughs> <laughs> He'll just drop off a, a rock or something. <laughs> yeah, throttle you. 
<laughs> so Alexander is trapped. There's men are soaked. The weather has turned. It's all awful. And he says to them, it's one of those moments that you said, Tom, about him always making the right decision. He says to them, well, we'll just turn around and attack the Persians. You know, this is our God-given chance. And they do. And because they're tightly packed between the sea and the mountains, the Persians quite can't quite bring their huge numerical superiority to bear. The Macedonians are much better trained. They have their long, their long spears. spears. They have their <laughs> long spears. And um, Darius runs away. Very foolishly. No, it's not foolish. Well, because I think it's foolish. No, it's Look not what foolish. happens to him, Tom. Look at the end result. No, it's not foolish because he's the king. And if he, if he, he has to keep himself alive. Because he's got to fight on. I suppose. Uh, and you could say it's, 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 it's poor because he dumps his mum. Uh, mum and his and wife, wife and children, I think. Yes. But Alexander's very chivalrous. That's- he, well, there's a lovely <laughs> detail, isn't there? So Darius has fled. Alexander is, he gets Darius's tent. Darius has a huge bath in the tent, um, which has been run for him, ready for his victory. And he's got all this food. It's like a huge spread, like a buffet, basically. Yeah. And um, somebody, one of Alexander's bodyguards, I think a guy called Leonatus, comes to him and says, um, uh, Darius has left his mum and his wife and kids, and they're making a terrible hullabaloo or weeping and wailing. Can you come and calm them down? And Alexander comes with his great chum, Hephaestion, and who's taller than he is. And Darius's mum drops it. Yeah. yeah, drops at Hephaestion's feet and says, um, "Oh, you're such a great fellow. Please look after us." And I, and then she's very embarrassed because she realizes what's happened. And Alexander says something like, "He says something like, never mind, mother, for he yes. too is Alexander.'" Yes, and people think, what's, it, what's going on there? That's and all bit. of this definitely really happened. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, so Darius's mum, according to the story, is now Team Alexander. Yeah, and his um, wife, and he treats them all very nicely, doesn't yeah, he? He's very, very chivalrously. And- um, so he, he, now ha- he now strikes south. So he doesn't head east to, to attack um, Babylonia and Persepolis and Susa and all the great cities of the, the heartlands. He, he, and the reason for that is that he has sent away his fleet. Uh, and so he's basically said, we're going to defeat the Persian fleet by taking away all their harbours. Yeah. So that's what he's been doing through Asia Minor. And now he goes down the, the Phoenician coast. And Phoenicia, current day Lebanon, is basically, it's the great naval power. It's the, the heartbeat of uh, the Persian navy. And so Alexander forces the surrender of all the Phoenician cities, except for one, Tyre, yeah. which is the greatest of the lot. Uh, and it's on an island and it's effectively impregnable. So, Dominic, what does Alexander do? Does he? He builds a causeway, Tom. He he, he's also yeah. very cross with the Tyrians, isn't he? Because there's some sort of business about Heracles. Don't they have a statue of Heracles or a temple or something? Oh, and Alexander says, so I'm, he says, I'm related to Heracles. I'd like to come and worship at that temple. And they say, and they say no. No. And That's he terrible says, mistake. right. That, right. <laughs> you don't do that to me. So he builds this massive causeway and it's this a takes, siege. It's, the, the one of the amazing things about this story is the time frame. So the Hollywood version, I imagine, compresses it. And indeed, almost all of us, I think, imaginatively compress it. So one event follows another pretty rapidly. But I mean, as you say, it's like a, a, a half a year this siege goes on. Darius is off licking his wounds. Alexander is laying siege to Tyre. It's a terrible siege, very bloody. And then he, he basically kills them all doesn't he, he? Wipes he, them. he crucifies them doesn't he Put them yeah he does it's the one moment in his career actually i think the only moment when you can say he really behaves according to the sources anyway very badly because generally people say, say badly it's 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 a calculated atrocity 
it's it's Cromwell it's, at Drogheda, isn't it? Isn't that what yes, the kind analogy? Of. It's but but it's it's designed to be salutary. It's a warning yeah. to other cities as to what will happen if they resist. Yeah. And so again, I mean, you can say, of course, I mean, you know, by our standards, it's incredibly brutal, but it serves a purpose. And once again, so 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 it's it's. I, I mean, I'm sure he's pissed off at having been kept there for so long. So obviously, there's kind of element of anger there, but there's also an element of calculation, and everything Alexander does has calculation. Well, so all pick the, up all on the that kind of mad stuff. You were saying about him not going east but going south. At this point, I think all of this is completely commensurate with relatively limited ambitions. So, if you were just doing a raid to get those very rich cities in Asia Minor that had subsequently become something a bit bigger, you would kind of turn south because you would say, why don't I secure the Mediterranean? Phoenicia is very rich. It'd be great for us to knock out a big rival of the Greek kind of trading cities and so on. It's kind of the obvious thing to do, isn't it? But there's the famous anecdote that Darius sends a messenger to Alexander saying, well, look, okay, you have the, the Western half, I'll have the Eastern half. Yeah, and Parmenian famously says, uh, well, if I were you, Alexander, I would, I would take this. And Alexander says, so would I, if I were Parmenian. I know, that's a great story. <laughs> Ooh, that's burn. a great story. <laughs> well, I think there's a couple of letters, aren't there, that Darius sends him. One of them is like, basically, give my wife and mother back and I'll give you loads of money. And the other is, actually, he says, well, I'll give you the Western bit. And Alexander says, why, I've already got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks for nothing. Um, and well, it- it's, he has, uh, but, but the, the last bit that we should do this, and I think that this should be the ending of, of this episode before we go on to yeah. uh, record the second part, is uh, he then invades Egypt. So that's an interesting thing. Do you think that is, if you were just proceeding in terms of sort of short-term calculation, would that be an obvious next move? I suppose Egypt is very rich, isn't it? And also Egypt, they hate the Persians in Egypt. Yeah, so they've, they've, been, been, rebe- they've been rebelling. Uh, they've they periodically throw Persian rule off. Persians come back. Um, yeah. Yeah, so they're they're very rebellious. The Persians have been very rude to the Egyptian sacred bulls. I believe they have been not disrespectful. True. Not actually true. Is That's that not a, true? No, it's it's in Herodotus. Yeah. So it's Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, who's the great founder of of the Persian Empire, who Alexander greatly admires, is said to have been rude to the Apis bull. I believe but, it. But I this seems to be Egyptian propaganda. I think it's true because isn't it notable that when Alexander pitches up in Memphis, he makes a great play of being being very respectful to this bull. Yeah, but 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 in that he's behaving as the Persians do. The Persians do show, I mean, the Persians show respect to, to everybody's gods. Well, I think I mean, famously, Cyrus to... sends the Jews back to the temple. This is your per- Persophilia um, coming out. So he, right, he arrives in Memphis. The Egyptians, are, they hate the Persians. So he's pitched up. They're like, fine, you know, do you want to be Pharaoh? They crown him with the double crown of Egypt. But then he does the first thing, I think, in this whole story, which is just very Mad. bizarre. Yeah. And is the and is the point at which you sort of think, okay, so he's not a normal warlord. He's done something completely, utterly inexplicable, which is he says, you know what I'm going to do now? Having conquered all these cities and Darius is out there in the east, I'm going to go off for like a massive holiday across it's the desert. It's not a holiday though, is it? Oh, of course holiday. not. I'm going to go on a big trip across the desert to the Oracle at Siwa, which is out in the sort of western Oasis. desert. Yeah, towards Libya. If you've played Assassin's Creed Odyssey, not Assassin's Creed Odyssey, Assassin's Creed Origins, you will know the uh, Oasis of Siwa very well because that's where you start in the game. Do you? Um, you do. But on the way, he he does something very exciting, doesn't he, Tom? What has he found? Uh, he founds Alexandria. He does. And you know who tells him to? Homer in a dream. Good. 
Homer says to him, there's an island called Pharos. You should found a city there. Alexander wakes up. Great. And he, off he goes on Bucephalus. And- so I reckon, I reckon that that is one of the reasons why uh, Alexander is so keen on going to Egypt, is that it is a part of the fabric of Greek yeah. mythologizing, fantasy, desire. Um, so uh, there are all these stories about Helen and, and Menelaus actually kind of ending up in, in Egypt. That Helen stayed in Egypt throughout the whole of the Trojan War, and that they fought over a kind of fantasy phantasm of Helen. Right. Um, Herodotus writes about it. Um, Aristotle's very interested in Egypt, so yeah. you know that. And there's been quite a lot of, of interplay, hasn't there? Intellectual yes. interplay between and, Greece and, and, and Egypt. a lot of Greek, a lot of Greek mercenaries have been serving there, so that they're very, very interested in it. And I think that that if you are, um, you know, you 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 see yourself as a world conqueror, and perhaps as someone who is more than human, then Egypt is the obvious place to go. Because yeah. um, you, you're going to be crowned as pharaoh. Uh, you are then heir to an unfathomably long line of kings. And if you go to Siwa, which the, is is the uh, oracle to Amun, king of the gods, who the, the Greeks equate with Zeus, who uh, is Alexander's ultimate ancestor, then you can see why um, Alexander might think that, uh, that that Ammon Zeus would look on him with favour. And one of the things that's bubbling under is the question of who Alexander's father actually it, is. I love that. I love is that it, detail. Is it Philip? Or, or is might it? it <laughs> might it in fact be Zeus himself? Be Zeus. So there's this story that on her wedding night, I think it is, Olympias was visited by a lightning. She was struck by lightning. And this was Zeus taking possession of her. And that Alexander may, in fact, be the son of Zeus. And he goes to, so he goes across the desert. And this is no, so going to Alexandria kind of makes sense, going to the site of Alexandria, because if you're thinking about creating a new empire in the Eastern Mediterranean, you need a port. You need a port. And that makes complete sense. This is the port that will connect Greece and Macedonia with your new Egyptian conquest. But then going across the desert, which he does for days, the sources say he does this for days, they tell all these stories. There's a brilliant bit in Arian's account where Arian says, well, there are multiple versions about how they basically fight. They get lost. They clearly get lost in the desert. He's, so he's gone with quite a small group of the key mates, his old mates from boarding school. And uh, Arian says, there are various different accounts about how they actually found the oasis. But the one I go with is the one by Ptolemy, who is his great, one of his great chums, who becomes Pharaoh of Egypt himself. He says, because Ptolemy is a king. And can therefore be trusted. <laughs> and he says, uh, Ptolemy says that they were shown to the oasis by some talking snakes. So that must be true because <laughs> a king wouldn't lie. <laughs> so I don't think there's any reason, Tom, for us to doubt. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that they were not. They're shown to the oasis by the talking snakes. They pitch up. Now, the oracle of Ammon, I mean, the Ammon is a really interesting god because he's not quite, he's got horns, hasn't he? He's got the, the horns of a ram. Yeah. And these are important because they will, again, remember these horns of a ram, guys. <laughs> yeah, they'll come back. We'll come back to them. So Alexander goes on his own into the temple. The others all lurk on the steps or something, you know, having a drink and comparing yeah. sunburn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think at this point, some of them might reasonably be saying, this trip has not quite turned out as I, <laughs> as I expected. A stag do's do go. This <laughs> is talking um, snakes. Yeah. <laughs> I like your Bullingdon impersonation is uh, it's worth doing the subject for that alone. Yeah, it is. Um, but the, the Oracle Ammon is a very peculiar Oracle. I mean, I, th- I, I still think it's hard to conceive of that taking place in front of you, the straight face, because it's basically a stone, isn't it? A, a moving stone. What I know about um, 
the uh, the Oracle Sea where it's it's one of the very last places to uh, remain pagan. Is yeah. the Christian period? So I'll put you Possibly out of your misery, the Islamic period. It's a it's a stone that they put on a big sort of tray, and they carry it about, and it has like dangling bells from it. And you ask your question, and they shuffle about with the stone on the tray, where the stone directs to often to pieces of paper with the answers written down uh, to your question. But doesn't he have a, a completely private? Yes, audience? there is. There is. There it is supposedly, a, and and there are different accounts. There are different accounts yeah. of what. So of one, there are. He never reveals what was said, but some people say, uh, as as this Ptolemy, the, as a top <laughs> as a top uh, children's version of the uh, of the Alexander the Great story has it, in the taverns of Memphis, the soldiers <laughs> exchange r- gossip and rumors, and some people say that it's that he says to them, "Have I sufficiently avenged the death of my father, and killed you know Philip, and um, and and you know have I got revenge over the Persians?" And they say no. No, because your father is not Philip. Your father is Zeus. And at that point, now the thing is, Tom, do you think he believes this? Do you think he thinks he's the son of a god? Based on his subsequent conduct? Uh, I just don't think that. It's going to give a very evasive answer. Well, okay, so so there's an interesting answer to this, which is... uh, have you seen this gold coin that was supposedly found down a well in Afghanistan? No. Is that one of them, Aikhanum or one of those? Kind no, of no, no, no. It's, no, no, no. It's, um, it's, it's southern Afghanistan and there's a well. And right. uh, they found a whole, supposedly a whole stash of a massive, massive hoard of, of, uh, of coins. And um, they kind of started turning up in, it's just the 1990s, I think, on the Taliban. Uh, and these coins started turning up, filtering out. Um, and one of them is a gold coin, which uh, has an elephant on one side and a picture of what's clearly Alexander on the other. Yeah. And he has um, um, he has a, a kind of elephant hood, a hood made of an, a scalped elephant. Uh, and he has the horns of Amun. Mm. And... It seems likely because there are also a whole series of, 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 of coins which were definitely minted um, in Alexander's lifetime showing elephants uh, for reasons that we'll come to in due course when yeah. Alexander invades in, in India. Um, and so it, 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 the thesis is that this is a coin that dates. It's the only it's the only thing that dates from his lifetime. Because there are subsequent uh, coins with uh, him uh, with ram's uh, horns, yes, aren't there? Uh, which are minted by Ptolemy, as in, yeah. you know, Mr. It's, Snake. It's the- um <laughs> And Ptolemy has his own interest in in branding Alexander as a god. Yeah, of course, because the Egyptians think of pharaohs as gods. Well, because right? Alexander, uh, uh, yes, but Alexander's body ends up in in, of course. Um, in in Egypt. So, so Ptolemy has a kind of massive interest in saying, "I have the body of a god." Yeah. So that, uh, and as you can tell from the talking snake stuff, quite, uh, quite a lot of these stories are. Not entirely reliable. Yeah, don't tell me you're going to diss Ptolemy's reliability. No, so, so I think, so I think it, to, to that extent, it's difficult to know. But if this coin is genuine, then that would suggest, and it's minted in Alexander's lifetime, then that would suggest that it is coming from Alexander himself. That still doesn't mean that um, Alexander does necessarily believe it. I mean, it might be for propagandistic purposes. Yeah, I don't know. But I, but I think the board, you know, in Greece, the border between the divine and the human is is much more porous, much more amorphous than it is for us. I think that's definitely true, Tom. And I think as well, some historians say that the Greece has been ever more tightly connected to Egyptian and Persian ideas of kingship in recent years. And the idea of a kind of sacral 
I'm using a Tom Holland word. Yeah, you are. Of a kind of sacral kingship. So when Philip was assassinated going into the stadium, which we mentioned in the first half, it was in, uh, he was about to join a procession of images of the gods. There was going to be images of the Olympians and another image of Philip himself kind of as a god. So already that kind of idea that a king is very like a god, perhaps even godly, um, or godlike rather, I should say, is sort of in the ether. And so it kind of explains why Alexander might believe it in a sort of weird way. And it's something that, that really kicks in, in in the decades after Alexander's death, where so, so the Athenians, uh, they, they greet this um, kind of, you know, uh, warlord, Macedonian warlord um, as a god. Because, and they say, well, because you're on the earth and the, god, the other gods aren't, and we need you. Right. <laughs> right. It's not a very good so reason, I don't think. That's quite a good reason. It's quite a good. They, they greet him uh, by carrying giant phalluses through the streets of Athens. Right, that would I would find that a bit disconcerting personally. Yes. But um, um so yes, yeah, so, so the, those borders are porous. We, but I think, and I don't know whether this coin is. I think it's generally not thought to be uh, authentic. But there oh, are very serious scholars who think it is. Okay, and and I am not remotely qualified to. See, to I think Alexander's subsequent behaviour makes more sense. If you think he thinks he's really touched by something, because this is well, the point. I he's think. Achilles. He's Achilles. So yeah. Achilles is a hero, and and you know we've talked about this before. Hero. The idea of a hero is, you know, you you are descent. You know, you're the son of a god, or you have something of the divine about you. Yeah. That is a that is a that is a a, a status that is kind of universally recognised in the Greek world. I'm sure Alexander thinks that he occupies that position, that he's a hero in that sense. Yeah. But whether I'm he thinks sure he's God, I, 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 so I, let's, possible to say. We're at the end of this episode. So Alexander is there in Egypt with his mates. Tom Holland's done a fantastic impersonation of the mate. Do you want to give us that one more time? Yeah, top line, yeah. <laughs> there we go. And um, there they are with Prince Harry and the others. Uh, Gearing <laughs> up. They're all there in Egypt. Now, I think this is the point at which anybody else might have packed up and gone home. But of course, Alexander doesn't. He goes on. And what happens next? We will discover next time, won't we, Tom? If you have pothos, you have pothos. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it my brain is occupied by the romans it's like gall if you want to hear more of my chat with tom give walking the dog a listen this week and while you're there you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of ricky gervais jack whitehall and jimmy carr what's that raymond yes the rest is history did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history no you weren't in it 
most spoilt dog in history, maybe. <laughs>